reading from Matthew 25, 31 through 46. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer the Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church this morning. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. For we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. With Psalm 100, which we read this morning. And this morning has has a bit of a different theme to it in some ways. First, um, it's Christ the King Sunday, which is a a newer sort of holiday in the church year, which we'll get into in a second. Um, And so we have sort of these um, three readings Uh, that I didn't pick. The lectionary picks them. Um, And so in the wisdom of the lectionary, I'm preaching from the texts that were chosen for me. Um, And and these three sort of texts, scriptures together, are supposed to draw us into what does it mean to see Christ as king in the fullness of time, in the fullness of all that is. If you look at the church year, and I'll put that up just for a second, um, the church year sort of circles around in an interesting way and sort of that next Sunday we have Advent, which starts over here all the way in the black, um, and then we celebrate Christmas, the gift of the incarnation. We move into the celebration of Epiphany, which is this revelatory acts of Jesus' ministry. Normally we'll hear about miracles during that time and some of his teaching. Um, we'll have Transfiguration Sunday in that middle there, 
move into the crucifixion season in, in which in the three similar gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell this very similar story of Jesus turning after the transfiguration and walking towards the cross. We'll have Good Friday, then Easter, which is this celebration season, the celebration of the resurrection of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Pentecost Sunday, in which we celebrate the Spirit sort of coming amongst us. Um, my favorite Sunday to let David preach, Trinity Sunday. Just tie it all together for us, David. Um, uh, Trinity Sunday. And then we have this long time called Ordinary Time, where we often focus on the New Test- Old Testament passages, um, Paul's epistles, uh, other things. And then it comes all the way around uh, to this Sunday, which is Christ the King Sunday that ends. It would be the last Sunday of Ordinary Time before we start Advent. Um, and so the church, I think in its wisdom, has decided to tell the story again and again in this shape. The story of Advent in which we um, both place ourselves in anticipation uh, like Israel in awaiting that king um, and waiting that one who's going to come us, amongst us. And for the Christian, we also place ourselves in waiting that return as well. We await the Advent, the coming of Jesus again. And it tells the story of Christ throughout that one half of the year. If, if you look at it, I'll put it back up. But throughout that one, um, so when, it, when it's at this angle, up is down and down is up. <laughs> um, it tells the story of Christ over that, and then we dive into the stories that point to Christ in the other half of the year. But Christ the King Sunday, like I said, is a late addition to sort of this liturgical calendar. And what it comes about is in the early part of the 1900s, there were all these authorities, and if you're familiar with history, um, some fascists and other sort of things claiming that we have ultimate authority, that we are in charge, that we decide all things. And what the church decided was to, to have a Sunday in which we proclaim that that is not true. That first off, in the fullness of time, all of these things, all of these things claiming revelation and your allegiance in some different way will fall away. But even now, the church itself is supposed to live as a people of that reign, of ones who know that Christ is the king. So often when I talk about the work of the Holy Spirit here, I talk about the way in which it enables us to see in the fullness of time. If you look at the book of Acts, for instance, when, when people are full of the Holy Spirit, they're often able to see past their circumstances into deeper realities. One of them, most notably forgiveness. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit as he is being stoned, is able to say, Father, forgive them. To proclaim forgiveness is not something that comes natural if this is the only frame of history we have. And so the Spirit has this way of enabling us to see in that way. I told David last week, David and Kim last week, that I'd read this passage from Eugene Peterson's um, memoir, or biography, not autobiography, that is on the back of the bulletin that does not apparently fit on this slide. But um, I'll read it because I think it captures some of what we're talking about this Sunday. Eugene Peterson grew up Pentecostal and he became a Presbyterian as he pastored. The move from Pentecostal to Presbyterian didn't seem like a big thing at the time, which should make you laugh. (laughs) The move from Pentecostal to Presbyterian didn't seem like a big thing, thing at the time. It still doesn't. Certainly nothing that could be called a crisis. I was not aware that I was changing any part of what I believed, and certainly not how I lived. 
But was I still a Pentecostal? I assumed I was. I hadn't renounced anything that I had grown up believing. I wasn't aware that my Christian identity had eroded in any way if I were to define what for me makes up the core Pentecostal identity, which is it is the lived conviction that everything, absolutely everything in the scriptures is livable. Not just livable, not an idea or a cause, livable in real life. Everything that is revealed in Jesus Christ in the scriptures, the gospel, is there to be lived by ordinary Christians in ordinary times. This is the supernatural core, a lived resurrection, and the Holy Spirit core of the Christian life. What Karl Barth expressed dialectically as the impossible impossibility, I still believe that, I think, is the way the quote ends. Um, as we look at these scriptures, particularly the Matthew 25 one, that is so often used in ways to sort of um, clobber other Christians with this notion of what we're supposed to be doing and often creates anxiety in our soul. What I learned in reading this sort of passage was that this life is meant to be livable. Even if it is an impossible possibility, when we look at what Christ the King calls us into, it's not something that's supposed to be impossible to do. It's not supposed to be something that destroys us in some other ways, but enables us to sort of live freely. And so we're going to walk through the, the three scriptures that we read today um, with that in mind, starting with the Matthew one. Um, interestingly enough, uh, there are... Um, Three passages chosen for us. The first two, the Psalm 100 and Ezekiel, are about God sort of coming as a shepherd to his people, which for us is like nice agrarian imagery. Matt is obsessed with Wendell Berry. That is not the point of ancient Near East agrarian imagery. That to say that somebody was a shepherd was to say that they were kingly, that they were sort of governing, that they were guiding, um, to say that somebody is your shepherd. And so throughout the ancient Near East, many kings and leaders will call themselves the shepherds of their people. So it's not just this quaint, sort of idealistic, sort of um, uh, living off the land sort of lifestyle, but this idea in which they are sort of, um, they're guiders, they're trusters, they're the one who walk the path in front of them. Um, in the words of Ezekiel, they're those who seek out the lost too, and Christ as our shepherd. So two, on the shepherd, Psalm proclaims that he is our shepherd. Uh, Ezekiel makes him a shepherd. And what Matthew 25 sort of describes him as is as doing shepherdly work, um, acting like a shepherd. That passage begins um, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the peoples from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left hand. You can see in this passage, this, this sort of kingly theme is that when Christ comes in all his glory, he will come as this sort of um, king with his angels, and he'll do the shepherdly work of separating. Now in Ezekiel, it's separating those, those sheep which are fat and which bully the other sheep from the, the sheep that are sort of um, living righteously. What Matthew does is takes that imagery and changes it to their sheep and that there are goats. And he separates those in this sort of work of separating. Um, and so this brings us to sort of the start of that scene is that Jesus comes. Now, it should be noted that this passage has multiple different angles to it. One is that this, um, it says, all the nations shall be gathered before him. 
Um, classically, for a long period of time, church history uh, interpreted this as the judgment of the nations. And so, in some sense, the nations which were not Christian were gathered before the king, and the king separated those nations which um, treated the least of these, which is a phrase Matt, Matthew in his gospel will use for the disciples, um, kindly, visited them in prison, gave them dr- food to drink, this, that, and the other, and those who persecuted them even more. And so if this is Jesus' last public teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, is sort of say, in the fullness of time, the world will be sorted on those who treated you the way you were meant to be treated as my ambassadors and those who treated you um, in, in, well, ignored you in some ways. And so this, this raises that question of what's going on in this passage. Now, what I would say is, even if that's the correct interpretation, it doesn't exempt Christians from being those who clothe the naked, who visit those in prison, who feed the hungry or give a drink of water to those. But it certainly changes the way in which we use this passage, I think, to create anxiety in the life of the Christian. And it's odd that this is one of the passages that I think the world knows well enough to create anxiety in the life of the Christian. Even more so, the last time I preached this, or not here, the first time I preached this at my first church, I talked about how it says um, that you gave me water, you clothed me, you did this. And the church was often had this time of being sort of this walking billboard and that we supported so many different causes. And what I said was, you know, Jesus doesn't say on that day when he separates them, you gave money to somebody who fed me and clothed me. You didn't give money to somebody who visited me in prison, but you did it yourself. And what I meant by that passage was to sort of say, um, to be engaged in this process of meeting these who Christ calls the least of these. Not knowing how much anxiety this can create in a person, a 95-year-old congregant who had faithfully administered the hospital, visited people, had done everything, had resigned his life to living in, in, in the nursing home uh, and supporting generously many organizations, took my call, and his wife blamed me for this, to, to go and to volunteer uh, six days a week at the local food shelter. And I was like, I was not intending for that message to go to him. I was thinking more people like me. Um, And yet what I found is that that type of anxiety resides in this passage quite easily. Um, Someone who had lived faithfully, I would tell the senior members of my last church that in um, the Old Testament, it said that old people, oh, young people should have dreams, uh, have visions, and old people should dream dreams. And to this man I said, you are in the dreaming part of life. You don't need to go and surrender yourself in ways that are harmful to you. He was not perhaps healthy enough to be doing the work he had signed up to be doing, um, but to dream in the fullness of a life well lived. Um, All that to say this passage has weird ways of bringing things out of the believer, and I always try to, I've preached on it several times here, to sort of pull some of that away. Particularly because if Christ is doing shepherdly work here, and we look at when he calls himself the good shepherd, or those Old Testament prophecies like the one in Psalm 100 from this Sunday, in Ezekiel, um, it's meant to be a comforting thing. It's meant to be comforting for the believer. And I feel like this passage has been distorted in such a way that it's hard. But one thing that always stands out to me is this 
phrase that both the righteous and the unrighteous use. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stra- as you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see your sick or in prison and go visit you? The righteous and the unrighteous both don't recognize the work in which they were doing. What I think that means, if you're following Christ throughout Matthew's gospel, is that he, if you are connected to him, you live in a way that's attentive to these things, but this is not another work. For instance, when I preached it that Sunday, this is on me, I wouldn't put it on the interpreter, the older man, um, but I must have left open the door that it was your job to go then and do this. But these people don't say, yes, Lord, I signed up for the soup kitchen and I did this. I know when I served you when you were hungry. I know when I clothed you when you were naked. I know because I did all these works so that on that day I may be a sheep and not a goat. Both the groups don't recognize what they did when they were doing it as anything other than being the way they were called to be in life. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, there's, there's a way in which the anxiety-relieving teaching he gives there, to not worry, to not dress yourself up in fancy robes, frees you in a way that you might be able to live a life attentive to those who come to you along the way, hungry, thirsty, naked, and in prison. Um, there's a way in which I think the Sermon on the Mount life might be a life that has some unscheduled time in it, um, so that you might be able to give attentive time to people along those places and lives. And so on that great day, as this king comes, whether it's the judgment of the nations as, as the church interpreted it for a long time, or sort of this individual way, it's not for us to take from this teaching. Um, I made this joke last Sunday, but get busy, Jesus is coming. Um, it's not for you to try and save yourself, save yourself in getting to know the least of these but as finding yourself more connected to Christ, you might find yourself more connected to those whom he ministered to. Or if these are the Christians who are in these positions, maybe you find yourself capable of being someone who is canceled. How, if this is the Christian, are we living in the world that says, possibly we will end up hungry? Possibly we will end up thirsty. Possibly we will end up in need of home or naked. Possibly we will end up in prison. Say, I've made a good point out of securing my life in such a way that those aren't options for me. Um, Quite proud of that. Um, I think you guys like that I haven't ended up in prison as well. Um, Although I don't think they're talking about prison unrighteously in this passage. Um, But how, if we find ourselves drawn into the type of life this shepherd and king is teaching us throughout the Gospel of Matthew and throughout the other Gospels, might we find ourselves living in ways in which these might be possibilities for us? (laughs) Again, not in a way in which you can save yourself. But on that day, we might say, when did we see this? When did this come about? This brings us to the book of Ezekiel, where 
where God, Yahweh, um, sort of says uh, in verse 11, for this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will search out for my sheep and look after them. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is this prophet who sort of sees uh, and predicts the sort of destruction of which Israel is going to go through. And he has all these signs in which he sort of brings out to the people to reveal that to them. Um, 34, uh, where we read from this morning, is perhaps some of the only good news in the book. Um, So we can't forget that this comes out of story of judgment. And it comes out of a story of judgment largely based on, on sort of abuse and forgetting God's ways in certain ways, in which these kings and these other shepherds have forgotten the ways of God, have forgotten God, and manipulated the world in such a way that people are lost. What God says then as the solution is, um, I will do that. I will search for myself and look after my sheep. What happens is, is that the... Um, the people who were set up to see the people. Shepherds, um, in some sense, live off of what they shepherd a little bit. Um, you have to eat a little bit of the sheep, which is not, I think, a metaphor we're supposed to take very far. But the point is, is that the shepherds that Israel had set up consumed consistently the people they were guarding. And so when um, Park read for us that this shepherd, this one whom he sets up, and he says at the end will be like David, will seek out the lost will go to those who need healing. We'll find those who need to be bound up. The shepherd comes as one who's not exploitive, but one whom is restoring the people and restores them in a way that restores the land if you follow through the book of Ezekiel. And more so than that, um, there's a way in which the shepherd is almost envisioned as beginning a new exodus of leading the people again out into a more fruitful land and place. People living through destruction in tiring times. Now it is not common in the church, although we try to practice it here, to read the church typologically as Israel in some ways. To say that there, if Israel, as the people of God, lived through seasons like this, we should not expect the church to be immune from living through seasons like this. And again, we'll hear that this shepherd, I will search for my sheep and look after them. So we've lived through times in which we've forgotten what we've needed to do, in which we've pushed out others, in which we've become um, sheep that, that don't know the ways in which we're instructed. Um, God says, I will seek out again. And that's one of the things we proclaim on Christ the King Sunday. That in the fullness of time, it won't be us who held it all together and made it all correct. But that Christ will come and be that person for us. And bring out that everlasting kingdom on that day. But so often, it seems like we're asked to believe in that the church is not like that. And I pray that churches can be better than that. But even if we are, it's not for us to forget. It is not us who's the shepherd in which God has promised. It's not our fathers, our mothers. It's not our partners, whoever we can expect to keep everything in order. But it's the one whom we are promised from God to do so. Um, And I hope that that can free us in some ways. 
But the last passage, uh, which was the first passage, creatively I did it backwards. I didn't know that. Um, nobody's going to give me credit for that. Um, I don't know how much credit you should get for that. Anyways, um, Psalm 100, um, this joyous psalm that many people know it's used often, uh, that begins with this shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Christ the King Sunday had some hard teachings in there, Matthew 25, Ezekiel 34. Yet on this day, as we glimpse into the fullness of time in which what we expect, the proper thing to say is to shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. To shout out to this one, to the king of all the earth. What I love about this psalm, too, is it's shout to joy, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. It's a unique part about Israel's monotheism that sort of believes that everybody needs to shout for joy to this one. There are other areas, other gods, where the people would say, our people shout for joy. The people that we belong to shout for joy. But the psalmist proclaims, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. It's not a joy limited in some ways, but it is a joyous thing that resounds throughout the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. That gladness is what makes this day full. Come before the Lord with joyful songs. Um, this, this phrase, to come before the Lord with joyful songs, I believe in light of Christ the King Sunday, or, or as we proclaim on Christ the King Sunday, becomes this teaching that sort of says, leave behind some of the earthly sources of joy. In light of knowing how history is going to turn out, who the king is going to be, let go of some of these fading joys. Come before this one whom we can be truly joyful and before. We can celebrate the joy of that day. In the center of this psalm, there's the second half, but know that the Lord is God. I was reading somebody this week, not a Christian, but they were arguing that we as creatures are polytheistic. We're always seeking to strive and worship many different things. Then the void um, caused, I think this is G.K. Chesterton, the void caused by not having a God, we'll find out that we have very, very many gods that we can worship and give offerings to. Um, we will consistently seek that out. Know that the Lord is God be freed from all those other false things that claim on us. It said in light of the 1900s when this, this sort of liturgical holiday came to be, so many things claiming your allegiance. To hear the voice, know that the Lord is God. Know that this one is that one. And to come into that living reality You've heard me say this before, but the, um, on the wedding day when you say your vows, it's, it's in some sense the death of all other partners. Um, you're to say that with this one, all the others have passed away. To know that the Lord is God is in some sense to let that be the death of all the other claims of allegiance on your life. All those other things which seek to destroy and to pull down, to rob. All those other things, and this is interesting, many of them don't seek 
the lost. I mean, going back to the reading in Ezekiel, that, that this is one who seeks that which is missing at the party. Most of my false pieties, the things that I have idolatry with, are never really worried about who's not there. Um, it's mainly fill yourself up, be joyous, and forget about everyone else. But know that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us. It is he who has made us. Now this is both, um, you can take this in two ways. One, which is God is the creator of all things. Um, that we are creatures in this sense. And this is the confession of faith in this psalm in some sense. It is he who has made us, we say. It is he who has made us and we are his. To say that God is our um, creator is to acknowledge this sort of gap between that which is creator and that which is creature. We are not creator. We are creature. Um, And we stand on this divide But for Israel's imagination and for the church's imagination, to say that it is he who has made us is to say that it is he who has made a people where there is no people. We're not just talking about creation history. We're talking about redemptive history. It is he who called people out of Egypt, out of the tyranny and slavery of death that ruled that land, and made a new people. It is he who has made us. In the same way, he calls us out of the country of death, of sin, and destruction, and darkness, and into new life. It is God who has made us, and we are his. Um, I believe I have up here uh, just a brief, um, didn't make it up. The, The first part of the Heidelberg Catechism is this question, is what is your only comfort in life and death, is the question. And the answer is, um... Uh, I belong, uh, I'm not my own, but I belong life, um, life and death uh, to Jesus Christ, my Savior. And we are his. I am not my own is part of the confession here. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. I am not my own. And within calling ourselves the sheep here, There's a sense of pride and humility. We have been called out, and yet we are still the sheep of this one. There's a sense of awe and trust. We have awe in this one who has made a new people and trust in this one. And so we are called into this goodness. That's what the next part of the psalm proclaims. Enter his his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give him thanks Give thanks to him and praise him. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. In proclaiming the Lord is good, we proclaim there's this um, constancy to the character of God. And the word most often used in in the Old Testament for that is often um, goodness that the Lord is good. That the shepherd, that the king we have, that we proclaim on this Sunday, Christ the King Sunday, is one that resides in goodness and who has love for us that endures forever. And the promise that his faithfulness doesn't end 
but continues for all generations. Again, I, I think started the sermon with a little bit of a war on anxiety, and I hope and pray that the psalmist can relieve us of that. It is God who makes it people. It is God who calls us his sheep, who is our shepherd. It is God who frees us and binds us up. And it is he who is good. It is he who loves and endures. And his faithfulness, despite what all we can do to frustrate it, there's a, the Napoleon movie came out this week. Um, Napoleon famously met with some church bishops and said, I'm going to wipe the church off the face of the earth if you don't do what I say. To which the church bishops replied, good luck, we've been doing our best at that for 2,000 years and we haven't succeeded at destroying. Um, it's not us who makes it sustain. But it's God's goodness and faithfulness to us that causes this life to continue despite our attempts to do otherwise. So may we find ourselves connected to that one living into that story of the shepherd who comes amongst us in Jesus Christ, who offers his life for us, who descends to the depths for us, and is raised up to new life for us so that we too, even though in the shadows in which we live, will fall into the depths and deaths. Follow one who raises us up back to new life. For it is his goodness and his love that endures. Let us pray. God, we come before you this Sunday to acknowledge you as king, to acknowledge you as the one who will be revealed in the fullness of time to separate. Acknowledge that there will be judgment on that day, but also goodness and love that endures. God, as we come as your people, Make us a realm in which we see your kingship here on earth, in which the people of the church can be those who surrender the false gods, the false claims of allegiance, the false paths to destruction, and may be guided by you as you guide sheep. May you guide us into the paths of life, We are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. Come to us now. Amen.